This episode of New Politics was released on the 22nd of April, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, rebooting the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the build-up to the federal budget, and the latest opinion polls show good news for the Prime Minister and bad news for the opposition leader. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, rugged outdoors man. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but... Whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There's been a build-up to the budget, which is going to be announced on May the 9th, but at this late stage, it's probably a matter of rehearsing all the lines, proofing and spell-checking, and trying to work out what will be palatable at this stage of the political cycle, and also what's in the interest of the Australian community and the economy. And there's a wide range of budget issues that will come into focus. There's the cost of the AUKUS deal with the United States and Britain. There's the amount allocated towards social housing policy. And there's also the debate about whether the Stage 3 tax cuts should go ahead or not, even though they're not meant to proceed until the 1st of July 2024. And there's other issues relating to the cost of Medicare and raising the rate of job seeker payments as well. But this week, the focus of attention has been on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, with the Government Services Minister Bill Shorten announcing the direction of this program going into the future. And he's pushing out a message of rebooting and reforming the NDIS after the previous coalition government mismanaged the program during its term in office. It is a costly program, but it's an essential program, and all the right messages are being pushed forward by the Labor government, but we just have to wait until the federal budget to see if the dollars are going to be matched up with the rhetoric. It was one of the, and probably the only truly great achievement of the Gillard years. Now, to be fair, they were short years, and they didn't have a lot of time to do very much, and very few reforms can be called truly great. But the NDIS was up there with the best of the Australian program since 1901. Any policy or any government program that helps disadvantaged people is a good thing. And I think it's right that a measure of a good society is not how it treats its well-off and its wealthy, but how it treats its less fortunate. And the NDIS treats less fortunate people very well. And of course, the misfortune may be that there's a lack of money or it may be that there's been a tragic accident. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that if you were disabled in some way, they'd set up a, an excellent system, which of course the coalition did their very best to tear down, going against what seemed to be the theme of the last coalition governments of kicking into the poor and unfortunate to make insecure wealthy people feel better about themselves, it seems. The other thing that suggests itself is that they couldn't really rot it in the way they could rot other programs. And so it had to be taken away because people couldn't get as rich as they would have liked from it. I'm probably being too harsh here, but the evidence is rather suggestive. 
The NDIS was created by the Labor government when they were last in office in 2013, but it was a project that was inherited by the Coalition and they essentially were the ones that had to bed it down and implement it fully. But this type of project is ideologically opposed by the Coalition, but it would have been too difficult for them to remove it or not proceed with it, so they managed to sway it away from the people who actually needed it and made it suit their supporters and benefactors, contracting businesses and larger corporations to implement the scheme. But, and this is another example where a government is ideologically opposed to a program, but they can't remove it politically. Medicare is one example. Federal school funding is another. And for the Labor government, that constant amount of money that goes into private health is something that they can't really afford to remove politically. So... NDIS is a mess up and will need to be sorted out. And we've got that unusual situation where the minister who actually created the system back in 2013, and that's Bill Shorten, he's actually returned nine years later to sort out the mess. So Bill Shorten has made some fine words about what the NDIS is meant to be all about, and this is all well and good. And I realise that deep-seated problems that have been developed over nine years can't be resolved overnight, but it's got to start somewhere, and I think that time is now. He gave a very good and even an excellent presentation to the National Press Club. He's saying all the right things, I think. I think, too, that he genuinely believes in the NDIS as a worthwhile and useful thing for Australia. And it's really hard to disagree with that. We should be treating everyone in the country with dignity, with support, with comfort, even if it's a frugal comfort. And the NDIS has been a really good way of doing that. And I hope that Bill Shorten is able to progress from what he's saying into practical and real outcomes and move towards the type of vision that he posited at the press club and make things a bit better for a lot of people who need things to be a bit better. This, of course, stands in contrast to the government's job seeker payments that are remaining at low levels and whether they have that as a thing to tackle next year in the next budget or whether there's a surprise in the budget, I don't know. I suspect this is the type of thing that they'd have announced by now. And it's all very well to say we'll do it next year, but that's another 12 months, 52 weeks, 365 days, 83,400 seconds of people living at a lower level than really they can afford and really a lower level than the country can afford. We can't afford to have people living in poverty. Oh, that's absolutely right. And we can't wait another 12 months for that. So the cost of the NDIS is it is going to be $35 billion per year. And maybe we should look at this being an investment in people rather than being a cost. But governments can always find the money to achieve their political goals. The cost of the AUKUS deal will be around $10 billion per year. And there can be all of those arguments about how AUKUS might be beneficial to Australia's long-term strategic interests and domestic employment. I can't actually see that at the moment, but that's a different issue. But if the government has got $10 billion a year to spend on AUKUS, and if it's prepared to forego $20 billion in revenue each year through the, say, three tax cuts when that time comes, surely you can do a lot more than just offer a $10 billion future fund for social housing, and surely you can find that $4 billion per year that it needs to increase job seeker payments to a 90% level of pension payments. Here's what Bill Shorten had to say about it. I know that Jim Chalmers, the Prime Minister, everyone is aware of how tough people are doing it. And Jim has said there'll be some measures in the budget to help people. But we can only do 
what is responsible and su- sustainable. And unfortunately, the, the budget that we inherited from the previous government is heaving with a trillion dollars of Liberal debt. Mm. So can't do everything. It's very tough at the moment uh, when you're on the breadline or below it. I'm not going to insult anyone and say that it's easy. Uh, I know that the government's been putting measures in place, other measures other than the specific one asked by this economic committee. So Labor's doing what it can and that's what we always try to do. What about the current level? 700 bucks or thereabouts a fortnight for a single. Is that enough in the current cost of living standards? Well, I couldn't live on it, so I'm not going to say that uh, it's easy for people. Mm. But the decision about raising any rate is going to be one for the government and our economic team. And I do have to put it in the context that this is not, it's not the only issue out there. Uh, sure. There's a lot of people doing it tough in a whole range of areas. Thank goodness we put in some of our places to help put downward pressure on energy prices last year. I mean, the reality is that all of this comes from within how Australia's going. And we've inherited a system where we've got skill shortages... Our energy market's not strong. I know that in my area of the NDIS, people who are profoundly disabled, we're doing pretty good things for them at the moment. We want to do some more good things. So we do what we can where we can, and that's what motivates us. Yeah. So Bill Shorten is a little bit down on the pecking order in the Labor government, but this decision is primarily up to the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. And we do have to point out that despite the flurry of activity in the media over the past few days to make it seem that the government has ruled out an increase in job seeker payments, they haven't actually ruled it in or out at this stage. And we'll probably just have to wait until the budget announcement in May. But the reality is that this is a bread and butter issue of Labor politics, helping people at the lower end of the scale and supporting people when they've lost their job and those who are looking for employment. And they can keep saying that they inherited a $1 trillion national government debt from the previous coalition government, and they can probably keep using that excuse validly maybe for a year before people start thinking, well, hang on, you're the government now. It's your responsibility to resolve these issues, and they can keep going on about how tight the budget circumstances are. But Raising job seeker payments by a substantial amount is one thing that the Labor government will have to do. Their own committee has recommended this. Business have been calling for this. Even MPs from the Liberal Party have strongly recommended this. And we have to remember that Anthony Albanese strongly criticised the former government when he was opposition leader for not raising the job seeker rate. So we will have to wait for the budget to be announced to see what the government is going to do here. But they can't keep ignoring this issue for too much longer and also to keep job seeker payments low well that's pre-covid type of thinking and i think the public is more receptive now they've experienced a lot of economic hardships over the past Mm. three years and it seems that there is more public support for raising job seeker and to use anthony albanese's words on the voice to parliament if not now when i think the old government trope of the doll bludger has finished because as you said, people have seen what it's like to be out of work and to have less money, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that it's not really in the control. Now, the doll bludger was never really a valid complaint unless you're looking at the other end of things where you have these so-called brilliant billionaires basically surviving on excessive government handout, which was the whole thing of the doll bludger. They don't want a job. They don't want to work for their money. <laughs> How much subsidy do we give the mining industry? You know, and I know they'll say, oh, I work really hard. I mean, do you? As hard as the people in the mines that you so-called employ? I find it worrying that Labor wouldn't at least lift it 
even if it was over three years, a little bit this year, a little bit next year, a little bit to, to get it up to a level where it should be. As the Rudd government demonstrated, money tends to float up anyway. But if people at the lower end of the scale have money, it's better for the economy. People get richer, believe it or not, because people buy things. The other thing too is that there's been a lot of anger towards certain ministers and particularly the Prime Minister from the left. And I'm not going to enter into whether you should or should not be angry. There's obviously some fairly valid claims there. But the reason I've always eschewed political heroes is that generally we make them feel like Jesus Christ and then we crucify them. And I think that we have to wait till the end of the process to see what happens before we start making assumptions as to what the government's going to do. Till it's announced, we don't know. And they're stuck with this AUKUS deal for whatever reason, and they've stuck with these tax cuts for whatever reason. And we don't really know why they've done it. I know Penny Wong spoke about the AUKUS deal and how it's a good thing for Australia because reasons that you wouldn't understand type thing. And the tax cuts haven't really been explained as to why Labor, who could get out of them with very little damage to political capital, but we don't know why they're being kept. But till this is played through, I'm inclined to let it watch. They're not like the last government who you know everything they did was going to be corrupt. And that's the difference. And I'm also not saying nobody in the Labor government is corrupt and it's a party full of the angels. And as these things come up, we'll be there. But it's a bit hard under these normal circumstances of government by adults to jump to conclusions just yet. Oh, well, I think that it's pretty obvious what Labor is trying to do here, and that's to build up its economic credentials and reputation. It's mm. probably also trying to stabilise the economy. But the Coalition, whenever they're in government, they just pretty much do whatever they want mm. fiscally. They cut taxes, they cut social security spending, they support corporations, and then they get applauded by the media. They're applauded by big business, and they get applauded by the markets. And Labor, when they're in government, they don't have that same... Flexibility. Whenever it makes any tiny reform to anything to do with finances, such as the superannuation changes to accounts valued at over $3 million, there were all those screams of socialism coming from the Liberal Party. There was outrage from the media. The money markets had a fit. And then the Labor government retreated back to its shell and tried to work out a different angle to try and achieve its financial agenda. So that's all well and good, but sometimes you do have to have the courage of your convictions to make positive social change. Now, all of these issues, stabilising the NDIS, raising JobSeeker to a sustainable level, social housing, this is why you have a Labor government in office. Community building, working towards a progressive society, helping people in their time of need. And the Labor government has currently got the most favourable political circumstances that any government has had for a very, very, very long, long time. And they've got an incredibly disorganised and inept opposition against them. They're up against probably one of the worst and most useless opposition leaders in Peter Dutton. They've got strong support in the electorate. The debts and deficit narrative that's always thrown against them can't be used anymore because it was the coalition that actually created all of that debt and deficits. So... It's actually got a lot of things in its favour at the moment. And of course, we have to remember that a government that is seen as popular and competent is only 
one or two bad policy failures or political stuff-ups away from becoming unpopular and incompetent. But Mm. this is the best time to start implementing your agenda. And perhaps it's a case where Anthony Albanese wants to bed down and establish this government's credentials and getting the electorate used to the idea of having a Labor government in office. But time is ticking away. Better start doing these things that you want to achieve in government pretty soon because the time just moves so quickly in politics. A week is a long time in politics and rooster one day, feather duster the next are the two phrases that should be above every or on every minister's desk. Uh, Rooster one day, feather duster the next was John McEwen, I think, or was it Archie Cameron, uh, the country party politician. A week is a long time was Harold Macmillan, British Prime Minister. And really that's the, the whole thing. Week is a long time in politics, of course, works both ways. Today's scandal could be last week's forgotten about if you can turn it around. But a prime minister who is riding high, who is popular, who is renowned by his or her allies, can be calculating did they were they in long enough for the pension in very short order. It's quite remarkable at a cabinet level. And it goes to stuff too at a cabinet level. You can be public servant advising or a a ministerial staffer, I'm sorry, advising the minister and with all the perks and in the next few days be packing up your desk and being escorted out of the building. Not because you've done anything wrong, but your boss has (laughs) and and everybody goes. So it's, it's easy to become complacent too. I'm not sure that the Labor government has become complacent over the, the last 12 months. I'll be fair there. But again, there's some worrying signs that it's either heading into complacency or heading into uncharted waters and it's not quite ready to deal with. And there's also been a little bit of noise about the stage three tax cuts and nothing will happen with these in the May budget and they're not meant to be implemented until the 1st of July 2024 but that doesn't mean that there won't be a lot of debate about this and this might end up being a case where there's too many journalists and not enough news out there so that's probably why it's being pushed at the moment and of course all the news about the stage three tax cuts that will be used as leverage for other budget measures and the argument will be well you're prepared to forgo 243 billion dollars in revenue over the next eight years and give wealthy people a tax cut well if you can afford to do that why not more funding for job seeker or more funding for public schools or for universities or for medicare or for social and affordable housing and these are all of the things that you'd normally expect to see from labor governments this is what they're meant to be good for so of course these tax cuts are still another year away but the labor government won't be in a position where it just can't do nothing about the stage three tax cuts my feeling is that there will be some kind of political solution to it not now but over the next 12 months by either introducing a tax on multinational corporations like Apple, Google and Facebook that has got popular appeal to cover over that or tinker with the legislation to redirect these tax cuts to lower or middle income families and this would need to be approved through legislation by the Senate and then they'd have to work out how to politically deal with this situation or the idea of a broken promise that's undoubtedly going to be pushed by the opposition and the media. Now This might all end up being an impossible task, but somehow they just have to do it. Continuing with the stage three tax cuts might not be economically responsible and it might not end up being politically responsible either. Legacy is an important thing. And when we think of the Whitlam government, 
those who are at least uh, moderately sympathetic to the Whitlam government and beyond remember the expansion to health, expansion to multiculturalism, expansion to uh, universities, free education, free health, uh, the building of decent sewerage in Sydney and Melbourne's outer west and etc. They don't remember other policies like the 25% tariff cut that had severe short-term implications for employment. They don't remember that type of thing that impacted negatively. They remember the positive things. And that's what you want. You want to leave government having said, look what we did and having people still appreciate it 50 years down the track, which Gough Whitlam was continually pulled over by people who thanked him for allowing them to or giving them the opportunity to go to university, for extending the lives of their elderly parents or or sick children because they didn't have to worry about bills. He didn't get a lot of abuse in his later years for cutting tariffs, which hurt the manufacturing industry, particularly in smaller states. So it's, again, if I was advising the Prime Minister, hello, Anthony, I'd be saying, what is your vision of, of a legacy? What are you going to leave the Australian people that is, one, permanent or relatively permanent, and two, ethically good? You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. There's also been a series of new opinion polls and they all provide a lot of bad news for Peter Dutton and conversely a lot of good news for the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And the Prime Minister has also been named in Time magazine's 100 most influential people in the world and this is some glowing praise but we also have to remember that the last Australian Prime Minister named in the Time 100 list was Kevin Rudd and things didn't work out so well for him or the Labor Party at the time. But there is a feeling that this time around things are different. Now, we never know what's coming up just around the corner, but Anthony Albanese seems to be a much better political operator than Kevin Rudd. He's older than Kevin Rudd was at that time that he became Prime Minister, and he's also a lot more experienced in politics. And He's also definitely been a lot more cautious than Kevin Rudd was, which is frustrating for all of the people who want to see more action on many of those issues that the Labor Party campaigned on. And sometimes in politics, a prime minister can be made to look good because of a weak opposition leader. But the flip side to that is that an opposition leader can be made to look even worse because of a competent government and a competent prime minister. And I think in this case, it's probably a combination of the two. But despite all the attempts and all the efforts by the mainstream media to boost his stocks, the polling for Peter Dutton has reached his lowest level ever, and it just keeps getting worse and worse for the Liberal Party. One of the things that probably allows Labor to do the less characteristic policies 
is that they have a very, very unpopular uh, opposition leader. I don't think he's the lowest, but he's he's certainly down there. I think John Howard in 86 was a bit lower. I think Alexander Downer was a bit lower. And Simon Crean was actually quite low as well. And Simon Crean was actually quite low. And I always felt very sorry for Simon Crean because most of his leadership was spent reforming the party. And then when it was all sort of ready, they dumped him for Mark Latham. And look how well that turned out. (laughs) Yeah, whereas Simon Crean, I'll be fair, probably didn't have the mass appeal that opposition leaders probably should have but also had to spend a lot of time not being terribly vocal because he was reforming the party. Peter Dutton is trying to stay relevant and it's just not working for him. The country has moved on from the things that made Tony Abbott so successful, the things that made Scott Morrison so successful. And I use successful with all levels of irony that the listener wishes to imbue. Whereas it it did take for those candidates... And for John Howard too, let's be fair. It's not taking anymore. We can go through a whole range of reasons. One, like Simon Creaney, doesn't have a lot of personal appeal to the public, whether fairly or not. Two, his policy presentation is awful, like Alexander Downer's was. Three, he comes across as the wrong type of person. And so if you take all three of them together and mix them up, you have Peter Dutton. He's not a terribly cheerful looking person. Now, you want a bit of gravitas, but he's also pretty lightweight and he has a lightweight cabinet. And in the cabinet reshuffle, he's tried to keep the right faction dominant by the elevation of James Patterson, a man who makes the aroma of fairy floss look heavy and Jacinta Price who came out of the National Party so National Party get one more member who is also not a particularly beloved figure nor particularly capable nor competent it seems. Now I think him giving an extra seat to the National Party could be one of two or three things. Firstly, he didn't realise that she wasn't a member of his party. That's probably being a bit harsh. Secondly, it does appease one nation who see her as someone they can work with. Jacinta Price fits into both ideologically and also politically their view of what an Indigenous Member of Parliament should look like and behave. And so he's appeased those people. I think he's trying to get that One Nation crowd back into the party. That horse bolted a long, long time ago. I think the third thing is that it's an acknowledgement that the National Party do extremely well relatively, electorally, and that their numbers don't move much, despite the presence of embarrassing figures. It might be that he's trying to demonstrate to people who are looking at the National Party and thinking, how come they're still at 12% of the vote or something? And the Liberal Party continually fall. It might be that kind of acknowledgement. Yep. But just getting back to that Time 100 list, it does include leaders such as Joe Biden, Janet Yellen, uh, Mitch McConnell from the United States, Lula da Silva from Brazil, and Alina Zelinska from Ukraine. Our good friend Elon Musk is also on that list, David. But of course, there were attacks on Anthony Albanese by News Corporation by claiming, well, hang on, he's only been in office for less than a year. What could you possibly achieve in one year? Well, 
you, you can actually achieve quite a lot in, in one year. And there were also those accusations that time had gone all woke in suggesting that Albanese was in the world's most influential people list. And Any list that includes Mitch McConnell is as woke as you can get, I think. Well, that that is absolutely right. But I thought it would have been good to support Australian leaders who have achieved an international spotlight, but I guess some people have got different ideas about that. But the Time 100 list, that's a bit of a side issue. But closer to home, those opinion polls just keep getting worse for Peter Dutton. And that's a reflection of his political performance where he has failed every leadership test so far, even the leadership test that he set for himself in the Aston by-election where he said that the result will be a verdict on the leaders and the Liberal Party lost that seat and he failed that test dismally. The Resolve poll that's published by Nine Media, that's shown Peter Dutton's lowest level of support ever, where he's favoured by just 21% of the electorate. And as you mentioned before, David, there are other political leaders that have had lower poll numbers than that. But for Peter Dutton, these are his lowest poll numbers ever. And he's got a negative approval rating of minus 28 points. He's also taken the coalition vote down to 28% compared to 42% for the Labor Party and the other polls released during the week, the Essential Poll, they're also suggesting similarly bad figures for the Liberal Party. Now, it is possible for a political leader to have low opinion polls and still be doing a lot of work in the background to set things right for the party and get the match fit for when it comes to election time. And, and I think Anthony Albanese is the example here where he had low approval ratings in the in early 2020 and Scott Morrison was so popular that a lot of expert commentators were recommending that Labor just forgets about the next 2022 election and focus on winning the 2025 election and as we've seen didn't work out quite that way but Peter Dutton is just getting worse as time goes on I think I've already mentioned that three or four times but there's been another resignation from the shadow cabinet this time it's Karen Andrews who also announced that she'll be quitting politics at the next election in 2025. And there'd be absolutely no doubt that Peter Dunn has got absolute confidence in his own abilities. And you can't really be the leader if you've got any self-doubts. And of course, you're not sure what your capabilities as the leader are like until you actually get into that position. But this is going from bad to worse to mediocre. And sometimes it's just a little bit difficult to watch. Karen Andrews would have been a blow to Dutton. One, she's a woman and they struggle with the perception that they're not great with women. Two, she didn't reflect the behaviour of the party at its best, I think is fair to say. She'd had run-ins and issues with Peter Dutton in the past. And that she chose to step down from the ministry, I think, is telling. She, she has stepped back to the backbench, which may suggest that there's a another by-election coming while Scott Morrison is hoping he can announce that he's finally found that plum job that no one seems to want to give him. I can imagine, and this is in no way an endorsement of Karen Andrews' political beliefs or policies, but it can't be very comfortable for her in the party at the moment. I imagine she feels rather devalued. I suspect that the voice to parliament had a lot more to do with it than everybody is saying it did. I also wonder if it was the last straw that something that she happens to believe in for whatever reason, whether pure political expediency or a genuine belief that this is how the country moves forward or the most likely is somewhere in between there with a bit of everything. I think too, it, it doesn't help 
the perception that Dutton has with women. With the notable exception of Malcolm Turnbull, the leaders of the Liberal Party have struggled with that they haven't been very popular with women. They can't seem to get around it. This won't help that perception. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. David, you and I are strong critics of the mainstream media and we'll have another session on this today, but there's just been so much media attention on Peter Dutton and the changes that he's made to the Shadow Cabinet, and I guess we're doing a little bit of that as well, (laughs) and I'm not sure if this is just the media's love of reporting on a slow-moving train crash or it's just another unhealthy obsession with the Liberal Party, but... Changes to a shadow cabinet rarely attract much media attention, especially when Labor is in opposition. The ABC even had a ticker tape referring to Peter Dutton's announcement as coalition cabinet changes before correcting it to shadow cabinet changes. And all the coalition has done, or all that Peter Dutton has done, is appoint Senator Jacinta Price into shadow Indigenous Affairs, who was an untested loudmouth troublemaker, and appointed Senator Michaelia Cash into shadow Attorney-General. And she was tested as the actual Attorney-General, and she was found to be severely inadequate in that position. Now, these people don't have any ministerial offices, they don't have any budget responsibilities, they're not in a position to spend any money, and generally they're not very good anyway. They're not in government and they're not important at this stage, but the media platforms them in such a way as though they were the government, even making the mistake of announcing these changes as a change that was actually happening to the government. And just as a comparison, when Anthony Albanese announced a similar level of uh, shadow cabinet reshuffle in early 2021, this was publicised by the media as leadership under pressure and there were caucus rumblings, even though there was absolutely no evidence to suggest this. But in 2023... When the world around Peter Dutton is totally crumbling away, he's damaging the Liberal Party in a way where they might not be able to come back from all of this damage, and he's failing every single leadership test. The media reports this shadow cabinet reshuffle as a refresh and offering more diversity. And there was an interesting interview during the week with the Australian Green Senator, Senator Hanson Young, on the ABC's afternoon briefing. Sarah Hanson-Young, welcome back. We will get to matters concerning you and the Greens in just a moment, I promise. But why don't we start out on a development of the day, coalition frontbench being reshuffled Mm. largely on the matter of The Voice with the promotion of two Indigenous senators. Do you think this will increase the forcefulness or persuasiveness of the No campaign Mm. that Peter Dutton and others want to prosecute? I'm not convinced that this uh, increases the persuasiveness, but it definitely is Peter Dutton doubling down on his anti-voice no position. And the Liberal Party are in free fall, Greg. 
And they have had a total mess of a, a year already. The Aston by-election, they still can't find a leader in you know, New South Wales. They've got the Premier in Tasmania standing alongside the Prime Minister backing the voice. And the decision that Peter Dutton has made on the voice and now with this cabinet reshuffle, you know, this is going to... You've got to remember what happened at the last election. The Liberal Party lost two seats to the Greens mm. in Brisbane and Ryan. They lost six seats to the Teals. Those members, particularly our Greens members in, in Brisbane, they're going to know that the overwhelming voters in those electorates are going to vote yes. So Peter Dutton is doing a huge disservice to the community. You know, in South Australia, the seat of Sturt is now at real risk mm. uh, for the Liberal Party. And uh, overwhelmingly, South Australians lead the way when it comes to supporting the voice. They want us to be positive. They're sick and tired of the nastiness of this nasty Liberal Party. That entire interview ran for about nine minutes, but the first five minutes were spent talking about the Liberal Party, the shadow cabinet reshuffle and about Peter Dutton. And Sarah Hanson-Young, she was invited to discuss Greens policies and Greens issues, but to spend so much time on the Liberal Party and from someone who is not even from the Liberal Party, and in some sense I guess that makes a little bit of sense, it was the issue of the day, but the ABC and most of the mainstream media is totally obsessed with the Liberal Party. It's almost like the media is still not used to a Labor government in office and maybe they never will be. I'm sure it suits the Labor Party in that they're not getting as much scrutiny as perhaps you might want a government to get. And for a nine-minute interview, which I'll be fair isn't unsubstantial, but she's only got four minutes then to talk about Greens policy, etc. If it was an hour show where it was a long-ranging conversation and they devoted five or seven or ten minutes even to, you'd think, okay, that, that's fair enough. And I will be fair, looking at from a minor party's viewers to what's happening has interest, but... I think Sarah Hanson-Young has better things to talk about, and I, I suspect she thinks that too. And I know that at least some of the audience does. And sure, the media has this somewhat mistaken belief that the audience isn't interested in policy, that it wants the personalities, and so it wants the personal drama. And so Peter Dutton in trouble is a lot more interesting than, say, looking at GDP rises in rural Tasmania uh, as opposed to suburban Melbourne type thing and, and how the government's going to change that. But most of the people I know who watch the political news, and I, and I guess I'm in a bit of a bubble here, but again, I'm not really, want to hear about what the government is doing to manage the country, not what Member X did to or said about Member Y. And yeah, I know it's fun and a bit naughty and what have you, but we are let down by a mainstream media who I think fundamentally misunderstands the Australian public. This week, the government announced that it's splitting the Reserve Bank board into two. One half of the board will concentrate solely on interest rates and the other half of the board will concentrate on the other things that the Reserve Bank has to deal with. In a week where the Reserve Bank admitted it had been underpaying staff and knew it had been underpaying staff, I think that that's probably a good excuse for them to remove the current board, many, not all, but many of whom 
shouldn't be on the board. And I think it's a good idea to have a dedicated board to the interest rates, which are more complicated than they were 40 years ago when the board was set up, where the board could run everything. Again, we don't know how they're going to manage their way through this transition. Will it be the existing board split? Will there be new members? Will they remove half the members and bring in... None of this gets discussed. It barely got a peep in the mainstream media. It was there, but it, it barely got a peep. But it's all right. We know that there are two politicians who don't like each other very much. So we can see that the Liberal Party is still consumed with the politics surrounding the voice to Parliament. They're still consumed with identity politics and appealing to a diminishing right-wing base. And it seems that they still haven't learnt from all of the recent election losses and all of the hammering that they're getting in the opinion polls, and that's quite a recurring theme on the New Politics podcast. Maybe one day they'll start listening to us. Now, sometimes it is possible for a political party to not change at all and just wait for external circumstances to change and for the electorate to come around to their way of thinking. I think the Catholic Church has got this philosophy as well, and that's what happened with John Howard in 1986 when he said, the times will suit me. He did have to wait 10 years for the times to suit him in then went on to become Prime Minister. But this type of event doesn't happen very often. And we could argue that maybe the Labor Party didn't change very much at all and just waited for the times to suit them in 2020. And But you don't get someone like Scott Morrison appearing very often in politics either. But just to show that the Liberal Party is not for turning, they're considering installing the anti-trans activist Catherine Deves into the Senate to replace Jim Molan, who died several months ago, and she's nominated for the position and there's nothing to stop people from doing this, but usually people don't nominate unless they've got the party backing and they've got a good chance of winning. Now, the New South Wales Liberal Party president, Maria Kovacic, she's favoured to win that pre-selection, but there is also talk of Tony Abbott being installed and even some outside chance of Rowan Dean from Sky News being installed, but I think that was just more a bit of uh, hot gossip floating around the place. That was sources close to Rowan Dean, I think. I, be- I believe that was the case. And But if the Liberal Party wants to become relevant again, these type of people have to be resisted. If Catherine Deves ends up being put into the Senate, it's just going to signify that the Liberal Party is happy to be the party of endless complaint about the issues on the margins that don't really matter to people. And as the former Liberal Party strategist Tony Barry said, well, the Liberal Party will just continue to be known as the nasty party. And successful politics is all about responding to the needs of the community. And sure, you might end up getting the ratbags who exist as one-issue parties that end up in Parliament, such as Pauline Hanson or Mark Latham in New South Wales. But for a major party to start attracting these types of people where they end up dominating the party, well, it's quickly going to turn that major party into a minor party or into one that just can't return to office because what it's offering is so far away from what the public will vote for and accept in public life. And these are the basic rules of politics. Become relevant to the voting public, and if you don't, well, you'll continue to be irrelevant. Catherine Deves nominating is neither here or there. It's whether she gets it that will determine the future of the Liberal Party? Will they find someone a bit more progressive, a little bit more in touch with modern Australia, or will they still try parachuting these terrible candidates into plum seats 
and it ended badly in Warringah for the Liberal Party. I don't think it ended that badly for the people of Warringah who elected a person that better represented their politics. But it ended very badly for the for the Liberal Party. You don't want your Senate. The Senate isn't necessarily friendly to Labor. So you'd want someone who can work with the crossbenchers, which I don't think Catherine Deves or Rowan Dean, for that matter, really could. They've treated the Senate as a trough for too long. Jim Mullen was out of date when he became a senator and he only got it because he threw a massive temper tantrum over not getting pre-selection somewhere else. If she becomes the senator, it tells us a lot about the Liberal Party and their view for the future. It's a long way for them to come back, I think. And who they install in the Senate is going to be indicative of the future of the party. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Listener.